All right, everyone, we're coming back with a new special edition recap with Colin Harper. If you guys remember, like it was like three weeks ago, Colin did an episode where he talked about his, the beginning of his adventures trying to live in San Francisco for 10 days on only BTC. Colin, how's it going, man? It's going well, brother. It's uh, It's been good being back in Nashville. <clears throat> yeah, it was, I think it was about two weeks ago that I was out there, and um. San Francisco is a beautiful place. Love the people, uh, love the food, love the city. Uh, good to be back home and good to be able to use my debit card again. <laughs> yeah, well, let's get right into it. Um, I know that you pretty much documented all of this on BitcoinMagazine.com, so if you guys haven't checked that out, you should. But Colin, this is supposed to be kind of like the audio recap of that week, so why don't you just kind of go straight into your experiences, your observations, any crazy stories, all the good stuff. Yeah, man, so I guess um, the, first oper- the first observation that I've kind of, kind of uh, honed in on, and I've written about this a bit too, was that the experiment was as easy or as impossible as I decided to make it. And I could have neutered myself in ways that would have just made it absolutely unbearable. Um, but the thing that I slowly began to realize, well, not slowly, rather, uh, but very quickly began to realize was while merchant adoption has definitely regressed, at least in San Francisco, uh, the infrastructure surrounding Bitcoin and surrounding the network has grown to the point where you can use it um, and fairly anonymously as well uh, and get anything you need so long as there is an internet connection and so long as there are stores that you know common stores like um starbucks mcdonald's you know walmart all these things cvs walgreens if those kind of uh if those stores are around you've got an internet connection you've got bitcoin you can buy anything you need um, so that was really the coolest observation to me, I think, and something that I uh, really liked about it, that Kashmir Hill, uh, the first journalist who did this for the listeners, by the way, she did this in 2013 and 2014 with Bitcoin while she was at Forbes. She's also from San Francisco, now a, uh, an editor and um, a staff writer at Gizmodo. Definitely recommend looking at her work, one of the best uh, privacy journalists out there. But uh, when she was doing this, one thing that she uh, really enjoyed noting uh, when she was using a gift card service called Gift, Bitcoin to gift cards, is that no one on the other end of the transactions with those gift cards knew that she had used Bitcoin. And um, that's something that I really found a little bit profound too when I did my own thing because I used Uber Eats to get around to get food. I bought a Whole Foods gift card and a CVS gift card at one point. But no one on the other end of those transactions when I would use those gift cards knew where I got that gift card from and knew what paid for it and that was pretty cool and that's what i kind of meant by transacting relatively anonymously but yeah as you could see in the series a very few merchants actually christian that still accepted in san francisco which was a big big bummer for me speaking of merchants that actually still do i went to stookie's last night which is a bar in downtown and they accept bitcoin and i to the dismay of the bartender who had to like charge up an ipad and you know load it all up i made him or i insisted on paying with bitcoin but it is cool when you do have that kind of uh camaraderie and uh and I guess community around you know paying with Bitcoin inside of a store it is it is cool yeah 
Yeah, and that's something that I was really kind of missing. Stukies was great for it. I had a wonderful chat with one of their bartenders. I believe the dude's name is Mitchell. Don't quote me on that. Um, but, uh, you know, dude uh, has been involved with crypto for the past two years. As he put it, he's been researching for the last four. Really had some skin in the game for the past two. Um, and uh, he uh, he's good buddies with the owner at Stukies. And just getting to talk to him. I mean, the dude was pretty knowledgeable. He, he had pretty informed opinions on block size debates on uh, Constantinople as well with Ethereum and uh, getting to just interact with these people through this shared hobby and love of ours was was great um, and I loved being able to do it at Stukies and I was really looking forward to doing it elsewhere um, but you know I only found my entire time there two places that took Bitcoin and one of them was a smoke shop and on Haight-Ashbury they, they preferred to remain anonymous um, for a number of reasons that I almost chalk up to kind of just general um, paranoia if you're in the smoke shop industry. Um, but, you know, San Francisco has been cracking down, they said, on tobacco um, tobacco shops and things like that. But uh, I was I went in there and uh, I had called earlier and they said they accepted Bitcoin. But uh, I started talking to the owners and it turns out that they didn't anymore. Uh, their payment processor, I think it was called something like Snap, ended up folding back uh, in the, I don't know, after the 2014 uh, crash. And uh, so I was pretty bummed. They didn't know how to get into their Coinbase account. Turns out after we left that they were going to accept it. They said that they would take my Bitcoin, came back in, realized they weren't verified. And I was like, well, shit, that's going to take too long. So I guess this isn't happening tonight. But they actually ended up letting me send uh, the Bitcoin to their son who just, you know, kind of... Uh, encouraged them to set up the wallet and accept it in the first place so it was funny even like that was my first transaction actually point of sale with a merchant and that took place on day five and the hilarious thing about it was is it was a point of sale transaction but it wasn't typical you know i mean it was very painstaking it took a while to finally get to and it wasn't even really supposed to happen because they had actually stopped taking bitcoin they just made an exception for me because i feel like they probably had pity on me um but I had spent the uh, I'd spent day three actually walking around Haight Ashbury with a sign saying that if anyone would buy me coffee because I couldn't find coffee anywhere um, or uh, buy me food I would send them Bitcoin kind of looked like a lunatic that didn't really come to anything um, so Haight Ashbury is not the best place to be walking around with a homemade no sign. it's really not I mean it was a little bit too authentic quite honestly most people probably thought I was homeless. Uh, and that's not the first time I would have been mistaken for a homeless person. It's happened before in Nashville. Um, Colin has a hell of a beard. <laughs> yeah, a little, little worse for for the wear after that week um, of couch surfing and couch hopping. Speaking of which, uh, stayed at uh, Christian's place. Uh, Going to take this time to thank him and his uh, lovely girlfriend and his roommates for hosting me. It was a great time, and th that was one thing that kind of became a focus of the experiment. Um, I, as I soon figured out that it wasn't going to be about how I could spend Bitcoin or even where I could spend Bitcoin, um, it was going to start being about who in the Bitcoin community I could interact with and what kind of experiences I could have. And uh, between staying at your place, Christian, crashing at the Crypto Castle, and actually one night sleeping on a sailboat, which was probably my favorite thing I did throughout the entire thing, uh, I got around and got to meet some pretty cool people. Fantastic. You want to go into some of those details? I know uh, definitely a, a few pretty famous crypto uh, Twitter personalities. Yeah, for sure. So I met Jeremy, um, uh, for those of you listening who may or may not know, 
uh, one of he's had his fingerprints all over the play all over the space. Um, he actually was one of the founders of Distributed, which is a magazine and conference series that our company BTC Inc. puts on. Uh, R being me and Christian, and he also uh, helped found Augur, uh, and currently he does uh, venture capital investment with his uh, VC arm called Awesome Ventures. But uh, I met him at a conference that uh, we were both speaking at, along with David, our CEO at BTC Inc. And um, you know, he was nonchalant talking about how he was leaving that day to go to uh, Park City to do some snowboarding. But he had enough time, apparently, to show me the Crypto Castle and some of his other things. Like, he's opening, opening a, uh, well, he's partly investing in a speakeasy with a pawn shop front uh, that's going to accept Bitcoin. Uh, and he, he showed me some of those things, took me to the Crypto Castle. Uh, I think, really, against his better judgment, he barely made his flight. But uh, that was pretty cool. Got to crash there. The people there are really nice, uh, really friendly, focused entrepreneurs. Uh, it, it's nothing like the New York Times or Business Insider would want you to think it is. You know, they, they like to kind of glorify it as this um, this hub of like millennial hedonism, where it's just a bunch of crypto rich millennials who don't have anything better to do but drink away the day and get stoned. And like, you know, don't get me wrong, Jeremy likes to party. But when I was there, everyone was extremely focused, just working. No one ever picked up a bottle. Uh, really quiet and low-key. There's even this, uh, I won't give you his name, another kid who remained a, someone else who wanted to remain anonymous uh, for different reasons, which I'll get to, into in a second. But there's a kid there who dropped out of high school at 15, started a company, and is now building that company in Silicon Valley. Um, he's just turned 18. Um, as I joked about in one of the write-ups, you know, he was building a company at the most time at the time when most teens were worrying about getting their learner's permit. Uh, but I interviewed this kid and I was just like, oh, so you're the coding prodigy, right? And he goes, kind of. And I goes, what? I go, you're the entrepreneurial prodigy too? And he goes, yeah, something like that. Um, Jeremy referenced him as his protege, but he asked to remain anonymous because as he said, if all of these bankers and venture capitalists that I'm talking to realize that they've actually been speaking to an 18-year-old, they might be off-put. <laughs> um, but so, yeah, a lot of personalities like that. Um, another guy, this developer named Dustin Detmer, been in the space for a while, took me sailing on a sailboat. Uh, we took it out on a kind of sketchy day, probably not a good idea. Um, you can read about that in the Day 7 write-up, but the uh, boat essentially got caught in some, some some pretty strong winds, and we decided that we had to end up turning back. We were going to try to s sail from Berkeley to San Francisco, but uh, nothing doing because the weather was a little bit too sketchy, like I said. Uh, also got to hang out with Crypto Graffiti, uh, really cool guy. Um, another guy who asked to remain synonymous, didn't want to dox him either. Um, a lot of anonymity and pseudon um, you know, pseudonyms in the space. Uh, as one might expect. We're doing it wrong, man. We're doing it wrong? Oh, yeah. Maybe we just need to come up with like a really catchy pseudonym. Um, just both have pen names. I don't, I don't know. What, 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 what do you think yours could be? Oh, man. You can't put me on the spot like C that. I just know that. CK Snarks? I mean, that's a pretty good one, dude. Although it's a little bit, you know, blowing the cover a bit with the... Uh, yeah, no. <laughs> definitely. CK everywhere is, uh, is not helping me out. Mm-mm. Yeah, I guess we are doing it wrong, though. You know, it's funny, the, um, you could really see, that kind of takes me to the idea that um, throughout this experiment, you could really see where the core values of those who are still around are. 
Um, I know that's a really broad statement, but like, you know, just like with that focus on anonymity, um, and, uh, you know, even, um, pseudo anonymity, you had people who were, you know, when we, we went to the meetup at Stookies, man, and it was just me, Dustin, Dan Held, um, and Crypto Graffiti and some other Ethereum guy who was also at the conference. I refer to him in the, in the, in the article series as Ethereum Moon Boy. Yeah, he, dude, he tried to, he legitimately was trying to make the point that he had thought of something like Ethereum when he was in high school and just like, I don't know, anyway, aside the point, but it was just the five of us. And I was a little disappointed that there weren't that many people there. But then I thought about the quality of the people who were there. And I also thought about the, uh, you know, kind of diversity of perspectives that was there. I mean, we had an entrepreneur slash capitalist, an artist, a journalist, and a developer who lives on a boat. You know, it, it was it was really cool to think about that. And it made me realize that, you know, there may not be so many people there, but the industry's reach has has penetrated into you know the artistic realm into you know the VC realm into the journalistic and media realm and thinking about it that way was really encouraging and inspiring to me you know this thing that Satoshi built in 2008 and 2009 has kind of become grown into something bigger than i think any of the people who were working on it in the early days would have thought of and i'm not even just talking about bitcoin's popularity but the ways in which that it has built itself into other industries. Um, that was pretty, pretty uplifting uh, during a week of being frustrated at the lack of utility I had with it in real life. Yeah, I think still point of sale, it's still very frustrating. Even when I was paying um, at Stookies, his, his invoice or his like uh, QR code didn't automatically populate a amount for me. So I had to scan it and then... I accidentally closed it and then had to rescan it and then put in the amount in BTC terms, which uh, is not natural to me still. Um, I don't know if people will judge me for that, but try to deal, you know, thinking in Satoshis is not that easy when you're used to dollars. No, it's, it's, it's not. And this is something that I thought about too, you know. It's like it was really kind of difficult to think about, think in those denominations. Um, you know, it, it reminded me of when you go to a new country and you're dealing with a new currency system and you're like, oh shit. What do all these coins mean? Um, but, you know, it, it really isn't there as a point of sale it, it is what became painfully obvious to me. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm the first person to kind of jump against the arguments that say a few people gave me this, uh, you know, what you shouldn't like, you know, you shouldn't be doing this. You should be holding your Bitcoin right now. Why would you spend it? You know, Tyberg actually gave me this one of our one of our colleagues at BTC Inc., and I told him that's completely the wrong way to look at it. I mean, look at what the white paper is called. It's called a peer-to-peer -peer electronic cash system. And I wanted to test it for its, you know, usability as cash. And Jeremy was also confused by this. He said, you know, uh, I, I don't think it's good for that. I think it's proven itself as a decentralized store of value, which I agree with him. I think it has proven itself to be a digital gold in some senses. Um, but I wanted proof that it was too difficult to use as an actual currency mechanism before I could just concede that point and it, it is too difficult and it's not there yet and I'm not even convinced that the lightning network is going to be improved enough to where we can use it as that either but that's kind of an unpopular opinion and one that I can't really back up with enough technical knowledge 
Have you told that to Aaron? No, I need to talk to him about it though. And basically my reservations are chalked up to user uh, UX and UI. It's actually funny. I was listening to, uh, you know, the latest, um, what Bitcoin did with, uh, Peter Todd was on it on this last episode. Uh, it's pretty good. Uh, but he essentially said that lightning has a better UI than Bitcoin's core network. And for the life of me, I can't understand what he means by that unless he's talking, unless he's speaking from a developer's perspective, which he is, I mean, perhaps it's way easier to code lightning than it is to uh, code core btc infrastructure yeah for sure and i get that but i was thinking specifically from a user perspective and perhaps i'm I'm thinking of ux rather than ui and I, i realize that i probably am but i don't see it being any easier to use you know um at least not in its current form uh, it's, it's still completely comp. I mean, state channels and payment, I mean, just payment channels and setting up multiple payment channels and finding an intermediary for the average user, you know, even if they're being, having their hand held through the process, it's very difficult. Um, so, you know, I think it's all obviously a matter of how well can we build out these services? You know, when will I be able to use lightning? Like I send a text message, you know, no one thinks about the packets of data that are being sent to and from our phones. But we don't have to understand them to use them. I personally think that it's going to happen a lot faster than we think. And I think that a lot of people are very impatient about like what it takes to you know, essentially bootstrap a completely new financial system. So it makes complete sense where we are right now. And it makes complete sense that the lowest hanging fruit at the moment is not necessarily a point of sale. Oh, yeah, no, no doubt. And, um, you know, I want to also kind of backpedal for a second. This is not to disparage any of the work that's been done on Lightning. Um, to kind of say your point, you know, people want things. They want things and they want them now. The Lightning Network launched at the beginning of 2018, and it's it's, it's, it's seen some incredible developmental leaps and some crazy, um, you know, some technical improvements. It's got a lot of people developing on it, and a lot of applications are being built on it. And uh, I'm, I'm excited to see where those go. Um, and, you know, I do kind of agree with you. This uh, this is going to take time. I'm, I, I guess I should say, obviously, it's not there as a point of sale. Um, I don't know when it'll get there or if it will. I'm just cautious to think that it – I'm, I'm, I'm skeptical from what I've seen so far that that will be – the main form of payment in the future. What I see it more as right now is this concept of being able to, like what we're seeing being, what we're seeing done in Venezuela, right? Like, no, it's not being used for payment so much in Venezuela as it's being used to reallocate wealth and then translate that wealth into things that can be used as payment. Um, But of course, this is kind of a, you know, short-sighted viewpoint because who knows what, what's going to be built on the Bitcoin network and who knows when infrastructure we're going to have a decade from now. I mean, if this is what the first decade gave us, if this is where we are in the, uh, you know, on the chart of adoption, you know, who knows where we're going to be um, during the next 10 or during the next decade anniversary. Do you think that even in 2014, people thought that gift cards were the revolution of interact or of transacting with Bitcoin? Um, Cause that's really what it is. Uh, they are the, re- <laughs> um, you know, that's a really funny way to put that, you know, judging by, uh, Hills, you know, judging by Hills account, I couldn't really tell you what those people were thinking. My, my, my 
perspective on it is this the people who really bought into bitcoin because they believed in bitcoin were already predisposed to accept it and those are the people who run things like stookies and they've kind of been here the entire time right um everyone else was on it for the hype and was on it for the price it's the same thing as 2017 you know i mean people were excited about it because it was making them money and why do you think people were giving discounts because if someone gave you a hundred dollars one week and then the next week it's 150 well fuck yeah i'm gonna try to incentivize people to give me more of that money um and you know so i think in terms of like merchant or point of sale adoption in san francisco um it was always more about being a part of this cool new thing in silicon valley and being a part of that hype wave um and this is something that dustin kind of also reiterated to me he said you know look Bitcoin enthusiasm in San Francisco has died down a little bit because it's always about the next new thing in Silicon Valley. You know, now it's about altcoins. Now it's about blockchain, not Bitcoin. Now it's about blockchain as a service. Now it's about the next hot ICO, though that's not so much the case anymore because ICOs are kind of increasingly under scrutiny. Yeah, DeFi. exactly. Um, but, you know, I, I think that people definitely would see it would have been excited about its ability to do that though so, yeah in 2014 you know that was a big thing for hill to be able to do you know in 2013 gift was not invented yet that's one of vinnie lingham's ventures it's it's like bit refill or paxful or fold app there are a bunch of them that allows you to convert bitcoin into credit cards but i'm sure that was a revolution for at least for her and you know for people in dire circumstances it's more important than it is to us like you know People, the only people who use local Bitcoin in Western countries are people who are, you know, super paranoid about privacy and taxes. Not actually, don't quote me on that. But people in Latin America. I think that's a fair assessment. <laughs> but, you know, people who are in Latin America use local Bitcoin because it's really the only thing they have access to. And it provides a very, you know, an important service as a remittance option. And, you know, I think you'll see something similar with some of these, like, you know, Paxful and stuff like that, um, which is also being used in Venezuela. Uh, I got a PR plug a few days ago about their transactions in Venezuela being up by, like, 180% or something like that in the past month. Um, anyway, I'm kind of r rambling on that topic, so cut, cut me off. No, that was fantastic. I mean, I think that local Bitcoins is a perfect example of how Bitcoin is still a peer-to-peer cash system just because it doesn't necessarily have the ability to scale to the entire world today doesn't mean it won't um, i like to think of bitcoin as like almost like a money standard um that is you know the standard itself is extremely scalable um so it doesn't necessarily have to be an on-chain transaction um for it to uh for us to leverage the standard and i think people are getting super creative with it i guess the last thing and then we can kind of we can kind of end it but people talk about hyper-Bitcoinization all the time, and I don't think people really talk about what that looks like enough. I'm curious what you think hyper-Bitcoinization looks like, and are we in it today? To me, hyper-Bitcoinization would look like a world in which Bitcoin becomes the new monetary standard for transactions. Um, and this could be on a macro or micro scale. You know, you could have hyper-Bitcoinization per country, right? Um, uh, whether or not that is 
a kind of de facto or de jour adoption, right? Like whether or not the market decides that or governments enforce it. I mean, I think the latter is much less likely um, unless there's a very progressive and kind of iconoclastic government that's going to do something like that. Um, so that's what it looks like to me. Um, you know, I've, I've got some, I've got some, some takes that some of the more diehard maximalists would, would disagree with here. Um, mainly on the front that I don't think you're ever going to see hyper Bitcoinization truly happen the way they want it to. Um, I think you're going to have governments co-opt cryptocurrencies. They're going to dress it up. You're going to have fed coin. You know, we've talked about this. Uh, you're going to have FedCoin, you're going to have the XRP and the Ripples and the centralized services that masquerade as cryptocurrencies but really aren't. And the public is going to buy into those who don't understand. Um, and then the people who do understand what a cryptocurrency's true value is are going to buy things like Bitcoin, they're going to buy Monero, they're going to buy Ethereum, Litecoin, whatever it happens to be. They're going to buy a crypto that is decentralized and they're going to buy a cryptocurrency that is divorced from that kind of control. Um, and I think those are going to exist as private currencies. Uh, as private stores of value that exist alongside these state-sponsored cryptocurrencies, but let's 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 entertain the idea because I don't dislike it. I mean, I would like to believe that in a perfect world, market participants will decide. No, we want cryptocurrencies. We don't want fiat. We don't want state-controlled currencies. We want currencies divorced from a government's influence and control. Um, and let's say that Bitcoin does get adopted or cryptocurrencies do get adopted as the new economic uh, standard for the international trade and business and finance communities. And um, I think that's a very scary future uh, because ultimately what that means is you're going to see economic disparities widen because the people who didn't buy in are going to be stuck holding bags of worthless paper and no one's going to want that paper and they're not going to be able to buy Bitcoin. I mean, once Bitcoin decouples from the dollar, if that would happen, I mean, th this would be the great turning point. If you're looking at kind of the dollar's value in terms of a bell curve or something, this is where it starts plummeting. And if we're looking at uh, Bitcoin's value in terms of, a, you know, an exponential graph, this is where it skyrockets even further. Um, once it decouples from the dollar, you have a huge problem because then there are people left with money that doesn't exist in the new economic mode, that that doesn't have value and that they can't actually translate into the new thing that holds value. Wait, hold up, hold up real quick. How, how fast do you think this is going to happen? Because I can argue that it's happening today. And I mean, this is the opportunity for people to buy in and there's more people buying in every day. This is like part of that process right now. Yeah, I mean, to uh, assuming the timeline where this does happen, I mean, I think you're right. Like to say that we're seeing it happen to the point of which, you know, where it really becomes a reality. I don't think that's what we're seeing. But, you know, if it does happen, we're seeing the early stages of it. This is why when people say, oh, you are still a late, you're still an early adopter. If this if we're playing the long game here, guys, yeah, like and, and people who say that oh if you bought in at 2017 2018 2019 you're not an early adopter no you still are if we're playing the long game on this because if we're at the beginning of this you know and we really start to see bitcoin you know pick up and people start to develop on it more and use it and people start to accept it then yeah we're at the beginning stages of what could be a complete shift and how not only like we deal with money, but how the entire world thinks about how money should be managed and how it how value should be defined. I mean, this is like, you know, 
if we're looking at economic shifts, this is us moving from the barter economy to the gold economy, you know? Um, and because right now that's all we're doing with the dollar. We're just essentially giving each other debt and saying this is worth a certain amount of this service for me to you and vice versa. Um, but yeah, so we, you know, we very well could be at the beginning of it. I just, uh, again, I think that there's a really fundamental problem here about wealth disparity if this does end up happening. Uh, one that I think could actually be very, very uh, detrimental, uh, both infrastructurally and, you know, socio-culturally, if we don't figure out a good way to, you know, kind of address it. So, um, wait, hold up. I mean, again, like, I kind of want to push back a little bit. I think that... Please do. Well, I think that there's already wealth disparity, so I don't see how transferring over the value to a different system necessarily changes wealth disparity. If anything, if you believe that fiat money is steals from you and is bad, then, you know, having sound money would actually make people better off in the long run. Uh, yeah, I mean, I do agree with the fact that sound money would be better off in the long run. It's not my, it, I don't, it's not a problem with economic model of Bitcoin itself that I have. Um, the only problem I kind of do have is that, you know, the only way that anyone could conceivably say that it's like a Ponzi scheme is the fact that, you know, if you got in really early, the earlier you get in, the more you're going to get out of it, right? Um, it well, obviously, depending on when you bought. Um, but that's not the problem I have. The problem I have with is the fundamental problem of, let's say that you have 45% of the world's population using Bitcoin, Right. And 55% won't touch it. They don't use it. They still use cash. Well, once you hit that tipping point where 51% or 52%, or let's even just say for the sake of a supermajority, 66% start to use it, and they've accepted it as a currency, then you've got 33% whose entire value, which is stored in other things, and let's say that a lot of it is stored in just savings with fiat, uh, their entire wealth is destroyed. And that's what I'm worried about is the fact that once Bitcoin becomes the new economic standard, there's plenty of wealth elsewhere that ultimately no longer there's if wealth is being held in another currency when this happens, then that wealth is automatically invalidated. And I think that there's a chance that that could open up potential for some serious economic disparities. Now, of course, these can get corrected fairly quickly, right? Employers start paying in Bitcoin, so people start being able to take in this wealth. Um, perhaps everyone at this point has a home miner of some sorts, um, so they're being able to stack it as well. Um, you know, I agree with you, Christian, that eventually a, an economy that's built on sound money would do well to, or would ultimately, hopefully, um, erase some of the more uh, pernicious disparities that we've seen in our society nowadays. Uh, but I still think that Bitcoin has gives people the potential to hoard wealth in a way that will create, you know, gaps just like in any in any other economic system. I mean, we've already seen it. There are Bitcoin billionaires who make the people who, you know, who make most of us look like tadpoles. Um, now, I'm not necessarily saying that's a bad thing. But I'm saying that if people are left without Bitcoin, when hyper-Bitcoinization happens, it's going to be very painful. I mean, I somewhat agree with that. So I'm not, we, we don't have to keep uh, beating on this horse. But I do like the kind of mental exercise of like thinking, like, what does Bitcoin, hyper-Bitcoinization or hyper-adoption of electronic cash standard, um, you know, whatever you want to call it, um, what does that look like? How will it happen? How fast is it going to happen? 
and you know like Colin says you know who's how are people going to be affected by it so uh, I think it's a it's a pretty cool thing to be thinking about especially as you know we're experiencing it yeah absolutely and like I think that you really hit on it like you know if if it does happen then you know this is the early stages right and, and to be a part of it is, is exciting. And that's why I do think it is important to be critical. You know, some people treat it as a foregone conclusion, and I just think that that's foolish. Um, they, they say, well, you know, eventually this is going to have to happen. Um, Tyberg is kind of like this. And, like, I think it's okay to hope and be optimistic, but, you know, we still have to play our cards right, right, guys? We still have to build the right things. We still have to appeal to the right people. Um, and at, at the very least, you know, it's funny. At the very least, in my opinion, sure, um, you know, maybe it doesn't win out as cash, but what do we get as a runner up? We get a decentralized store of value. We get decentralized gold. And to me, that's just as good. Um, you know, if I can hold my wealth in something like that and ultimately transmute it into other things that I can, you know, into services, whether it be through these exchanges or, you know, and it's, it's, it's perfect for online transactions as well. That's the other thing that we haven't really touched on here that I kind of like, it seems so simple once you think about it, but it seemed like kind of profound to me. All my transactions were online, obviously, and they were seamless. They were so quick. I didn't have to worry about anything. And that's one thing that's so beautiful about it. Like, yeah, we're not using it in stores, but like eventually, you know, if the economy is moving online anyway, will we, will we really have to in 20 years? I mean, probably at some places, but you know, um, it, it's perfect for what it's supposed to be right now. It's, it's, it's an internet for, it's, it's currency for the internet. It's the internet of value, as Andreas Antonopoulos calls it. And uh, that's one thing I found out of my week is like, yeah, it, it's perfect for that. And, um, you know, being able to transact that way and being able to completely have whole control over your funds. Um, it, was, it, was, it, was, it was a fun experiment for the week, and it really gave me some perspective on what the kind of challenges that Bitcoin has for adoption and where it's actually really succeeding. Last question, uh, are you going to do this experiment again? Uh, and if so, where? Uh, and then after that, just anything that you want to ask from our audience, shout outs, where, the, where can they find you, that whole thing? Yeah, uh, absolutely, I'd do it again. Um, the day seven write-up is actually titled A Supposedly Fun Thing I'd Definitely Do Again. It's an allusion to uh, an essay by David Foster Wallace called A Supposedly Fun Thing I'd Never Do Again, where he goes on a cruise ship. Um, but... Uh, I, I absolutely would do it again. And uh, I'm eyeing right now. I'd love to try it in Canada. I'd love to try it specifically in British Columbia and uh, the uh, Vancouver uh, areas. And um, I'd like to try it in New York. And I'm really burning to get out to to Europe. And I would. what I'd really like to do is do this for a month and do it through and do it in the Czech Republic, mainly Prague. Do it in the Netherlands. Netherlands, uh, Aaron tells me, has pretty good adoption. Potentially London, United Kingdom area. Uh, I'd also love to get out to Latin America and kind of cover some of the expat communities from Venezuela down there who are using it to send money back to their families. I think that would be another really, really, uh, really useful or just just a really fruitful um, experience. Um, but, uh, yeah, as for the rest, um, you can give me a shout on Twitter, uh, as I lay hodling, obviously all my shits on Bitcoin magazine. If, uh, any of the viewers have any places you think I should go to try out or any places I might've missed in San Francisco, please let me know. 
always uh, down to hear new ideas. You guys, we need to start a GoFundMe so Colin can go on a world tour to spend Bitcoin. Dude, I mean, I'd take it. <laughs> I'd, I'd definitely take it. I mean, I might self-fund it, honestly. I think there'd be a pretty good book in it, but we'll have to see. Yeah, man. Again, these are early days. You're like a founding father, making it happen. <laughs> I don't know about that. I think uh, I think plenty of other people have more of a claim over that. That being said, it is really exciting to be a part of it, um, and it's exciting to be able to interact with such a vibrant community and a community that really cares about what they're doing. For sure, for sure. Cool. Well, again, thanks for coming on. Uh, I think this was a cool little two-part series. So if you missed the first part, it's uh, like four or five episodes ago. POV special, Living on Bitcoin with Colin. Uh, This will be part two. And yeah, we'll have to get you back on again, man. You're the first two-time guest. So I think that's a pretty cool honor. Yeah, feeling feeling pretty uh, feeling pretty hashtag blessed for that. It's been really fun. Really appreciate it, Christian. Hope I can be on an episode uh, maybe you know a year from now when I do this again. All right, cool. All right, everyone, catch the show on Twitter at POV CryptoPod. I'm CK underscore Snarks. Thanks for listening.